0: Hey, it's good to see you all this morning. I'm Josh. I'm one of the ministers. I'm so glad to see you today. And for those of you joining us online, welcome. We're so glad you're with us. I do want to say this, though. If you are not with us in person, you are missing out. We love, love, love that you're with us wherever you are. But there is something special about being together with God's people. And I'm so glad to get to be here with you today, and we're going to see the second service here in another hour, so there's going to be a whole other crew in here, and we're going to be together. One of the things that makes the church unique is it's not just a group of people who gather for an event, this is a group of people who gather to celebrate The event that has changed every other event, and that is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Grab your Bibles. We have a lot to cover, but I'm going to simplify it as much as I can. Go with me to the very last book of the Bible. It's the book of Revelation. Not Revelations. There's no S at the end because it's not multiple. It's singular. Because the word revelation actually comes from this Greek word. We've talked about it before, Apocalypsis, which simply means unveiling or revealing or Revelation. And the book of Revelation is the unveiling like a curtain being lifted on stage showing us who Jesus is and his plan for us and God's ultimate design for winning all that is broken and fixing it to the way that it was always supposed to be. And we've been going through this book, and it is a weird one. In fact, today we're going to begin in chapter 14, and we're going to get through chapter 18. Don't worry, I will not read all of it, but we're going to hit some of the highlights so we can capture what God wants us to see. But here's where I want to begin. I want to begin with a little bit of a question. This is an odd question, so so listen, hint, hint, up. Here's what I need to ask you. If you know the technical term for the sound you are about to hear, I want you to shout it out. If you don't know it, we'll talk about it. But how many of you know the technical term for this annoying sound right here? Have you you heard this where it's just kind of going up and up and up? This is actually called a shepherd tone. Have you guys heard of this before? Or maybe you've just heard it. And and it's like, it just kind of keeps going and going and going. But did you know that this is actually an audio illusion? It's not actually going up, 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 up infinitely. Rather, you you can go ahead and cut that off for a second. Yeah, yeah, okay. (laughs) Some of you are going... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> what it's actually doing is it's the same tone repeated at intervals overlapping itself going up and up and up. Some people will call that tone an audio barbershop sign. You know the barbershop signs with the white and the red that swirl around and they keep spinning. And it looks like it just keeps going forever and ever and ever. But it's not. It's, an, it's a visual illusion and this is an audio illusion in fact, Christopher Nolan in the Dark Knight movies uses this all the time. Go back and watch the scene where Batman is on the Bat Cycle, Bat Bike, Batmobile, whatever that thing is with the two wheels. And he's on it. If you listen, it sounds like that's the engine, and he's just using a shepherd's tone to create this sense of momentum and tension. In fact, shepherd's tones create not just tension, they create a bit of anxiety. If you listen to this very long, it will absolutely make you want to crawl out of your skin, won't it? So why would your preacher do that to you? Is it A, because it's fun? Well, <laughs> Yes, actually. No, no. Is it because it's... Or is there something else here? Did you know that what we're seeing in the book of Revelation is like a shepherd's tone? Have you noticed this? I mean, we're building and building and building and building and building. And then we start all over. And we're building, and we're building. And it's almost as though there's this intentional tension building that God wants us to see something and to experience the tension of what is broken and God's plan to fix it. For when you've heard this over and over again and you get to resolution, it creates a sense of... So let's just do this again. Here's the book of Revelation in brief. This little image here, some of you are going, this is such a goofy illustration, but hang with me. Isn't this true? This is sort of the outline of Revelation. First part, very simple, we kind of all understand what's happening. Last part, we get it, God comes back, fixes everything, yay God. It's this part that makes us go, what is going on? And we see these series of sevens, we see seven seals, trumpets, and bowls. Oh my and what do you have here? You have a building, a building, a building, and then before the resolution, it starts all over again, and then it starts all over again. And what we said last week is instead of viewing these as sequential events that happen one after the other after the other, view them rather as the same series of events from three different perspectives. Now, someone asked me this week, hey, Diggs, you said three different perspectives. Whose perspectives? Whose perspectives? I'm so glad you asked. Let me show you real quickly. The seven seals are from the perspective of the saved in heaven. Chapters four and five will show that it is the saved. You say, how long, O Lord, until all this happens? And you'll see all of creation celebrating as Christ breaks open the seals on the scroll. So it's from the saved. The trumpets Well, that's from the rebellious on earth's perspective. They are experiencing the wrath of God for their sin. Same events from a different perspective. And now finally, the seven bowls, that is the perspective of God. In fact, we're told it is from the temple of God, the tabernacle of God, the the very epicenter of where God's presence resides that these plagues come out and this is God's perspective now on his plan to deal with sin to redeem humanity and to bring about good conclusion from brokenness on earth. But we're going to see it play over and over and over again and today I want us to hit on two things that we see throughout all of these repeating themes are you ready there are two Complementary, equally important, balancing characteristics of God that we see throughout the book of Revelation. And if we don't point it out with a big spotlight, you are liable to miss the goodness of God and the importance of how God sees and deals with sin. The two characteristics are God's mercy and God's justice. We have a God who is merciful and a God who also is full of justness and wants justice for us, and for Him, and for creation. And both of these are tensions, right? Because when we have been wronged, we want justice for ourselves, don't we? But when we have done the wronging, what do we desire? Mercy. I don't know about you, but I want mercy. Mercy for me, justice for thee, right? And we serve a God with both. And so I want to walk you through this. Because you will not understand who God is without grasping both of these pieces. So we first see the mercy of God in chapter 14. I want you to see these verses, verse 6 through, I believe, 12, or verse 11, rather, what it says about the mercy of God. Look at what it says. Then I saw another angel flying in midair. By the way, remember, these are symbols to help us understand something. And he, the angel, had the eternal gospel to proclaim to those who live on the earth to Every nation, every tribe, every language, and every people. He said in a very loud voice, Fear God and give Him glory because the hour of His judgment has come. Worship Him who made the heavens and the earth, the sea and the springs of water. A second angel followed and said, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great which made all the nations drink the maddening wine of her adulteries. A third angel followed them and said in a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives its mark on their forehead or on their hand, they too will drink the wine of God's fury which has been poured full strength into the cup of his wrath. Oh, that we had time to deal with all these deep pictures They will be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and of the Lamb, and the smoke of their torment will rise forever and ever. There will be no rest, day or night, for those who worship the beast and its image, or for anyone who receives the mark of its name. You say, Diggs, how in the world is that a picture of God's mercy? I want to show you why this is a beautiful picture of mercy. Because what you see right now is the process, the headlong collision that is taking place. No survivors in this impact. And as the wreck is occurring, God shows up and says, I am calling you out of this moment. Maybe a better example, the Titanic is sinking. He shows up and says, I have a life raft. Get off. And he says it three different ways. God shows mercy first nature itself. Did you get that very first picture? The first angel shows up and he says, fear God. Now that word fear doesn't mean be afraid of God in sort of cowering sense, but rather an awe of God. Oh, oh my. It's that moment when you see an epic storm coming your way. You're not You see it, and yes, you see the power. And perhaps there is a bit of, oh my, but it's also, look how grand it is. And I am but a speck in comparison. But he doesn't just say, fear God. But notice he says, fear God and worship Him who made the heavens, the earth, and the sea. You say, how is this an act of God's mercy? Well, as Paul writes in Romans chapter 1, Paul says that God's, for since the creation of the world... God's invisible qualities, His eternal power, His divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without. Excuse, here's all what Paul is saying and what the angel is saying here in Revelation. One of the evidences, one of the mercies of God, that you and I could find God and be found by God, is He creates nature as a means for us to know who God is. You look out and you go, how did this just happen? How does this just come about? And it is there to draw us to Him. The first invitation is to simply open your eyes and see that all of this is not an accident, but one is behind it. And this one wants you to know Him. The first invitation He shows is through nature. And then the second act of mercy is through nature. The fall of Babylon, showing Babylon's fate. Here's a way to think of it. Let's, for a moment, pretend we lived a little less than 100 years ago. The stock market is about to crash, people are about to lose everything. We will go into the Great Depression. But imagine someone comes to you a week before the crash and tells you everything that is about to happen and says, get your money out of the stock market. Put it in these things. Collectively do these acts to prepare for what is to come. Someone comes and saves you before the event occurs. That is what is happening here. The mercy of God is to tell us this is what's about to happen. That the culture we live in is not to be relied upon. The leaders of our nation or of the world, they are human. They cannot, even at their best, save you from what's really wrong. Babylon's fate is destruction, it is going to fall. Flee from what is about to happen. The grace of God is to give the people of God the insider scoop get off the Titanic. It's like this. We talked about it a few weeks ago, how the devil is just a snake with its head chopped off. Do you remember that video we looked at? How many of you still are kind of grossed out by that image? But do you remember the snake could still strike you even without its head attached to the body, right? He's saying, Babylon, it is a dog in the street about to be run over. It is already dead but doesn't even know it. Run from that. I will show you in nature, God says... I will show you by showing you what's about to happen, the fall of this world. Do not put your hope in this world. And then the last thing he says, he says, if that still doesn't stir in you a desire to return to me, he then gives this final invitation, and it's in the picture of a warning. He says, I need you to know that hell is real. Hell is not just a figment of someone's imagination for the purpose of selling more books or creating television series. This is a real place. But the first thing you need to know is that hell was not created for you or for me. Hell was intended for the devil and his angels. But God says if you attach yourself to the enemy, if you choose to go where he goes, that's where he's going. So God gives this vivid picture as a third and final act of mercy to say, "I don't want you to go there." You get the picture of God begging us to not follow in the footsteps of the beast, and He says, "I'm going to give you a very vivid picture." Now, if you're like so many in this room, you grew up maybe in churches that were hell, fire, and brimstone churches. How many of you know what a hell, fire, and brimstone church is? You, you ever heard that phrase? Let, let me give you a few descriptions. Hellfire and Brimstone churches are the churches where every Sunday the preacher would give you a guided tour of hell. You know what I'm talking about? Hellfire and Brimstone churches, these are the churches where the preacher every Sunday would try to hold you over hell like a marshmallow. And unless you felt a little crispy, he hadn't done his job, right? Now that is not the picture that I want you to get of what we are supposed to do as a church. We're not supposed to fixate on hell, but we also cannot ignore hell. And so God gives this vivid imagery. And here's basically what you need to know. Whatever heaven is like, hell is the opposite. So in the first few chapters, chapter 4 and 5, you get this picture of heaven. There's this beauty to it. There's light everywhere. God is physically present. The smell of the prayers of the saints coming up to God smell like incense. Mmm, beautiful. And then how is hell described? It is not a place of light, but it's a place of complete darkness. It's a place absent from God, where you're utterly isolated. And instead of the beauty and the smell of incense, the prayers of the saints, did you notice that the smells of heaven are sulfur and acrid smoke? Everything that heaven is, hell is the opposite. And the worst part, there is no rest there. Now, this is not to be understood as you get a day off. I'm talking about the soul-satisfying, I'm done. It's like that afternoon when you spent all day clearing brush from your backyard or that big project at work or your kids have finally graduated from high school. Yay, God! And you get a sigh, a big sigh of relief. You're like, ah. But he says, in this place, there is no sense of peace or rest. See, the mercy of God comes because God does not want any that he has created to be separated from him. Look at nature. Be aware of the times and understand if you follow the beast, this is where he leads. God's character is one of mercy. And it is not just for you or for me, but notice he says it's for everybody. He says the angel came with the eternal gospel. And notice it was for every nation, tribe, language, and people. The very best and the very worst received the same good News. That's what the word gospel means. And it's not just for everyone. It is a gift, a way out. Because we're told in verse 13, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord. That He is our way out from what is broken. That anyone who's in Jesus is no longer in the world. Anyone who's in Jesus is no longer associated with the ideology of the enemy. Whoever is in Jesus Christ is now saved from the fate of the world And we are now sealed with God, with him forever. But the problem is it is for a limited time because he will say there's a time for reaping where all that has come is now over. And then it will be time for God's justice to fully come on us. So there's mercy, now there's justice. Now, we're going to move quickly here, but I want to give you just a few things on this. God's justice is now going to be seen through the seven bowls. Remember, we had seven seals, seven trumpets, now seven bowls. God's perspective of his plan through human history to bring about redemption and the consequence of sin. So seven angels in chapter 15 are given bowls, and in the bowls are the plagues or the curses or the consequences of all the sin that we have committed. Now, here's what I need you to know. Often, when we think of these moments of God's justice or judgment, we think of an angry God, like some angry parent who's just about to snap. Except for this God, with this parent, he doesn't spank you. He grabs the nearest lightning bolt and shoots you, right? This is a picture so many of us have. But that's not the picture I want you to see here. Often, the judgment of God is not an act of judging of God like Him... Physically attacking. Rather, even worse, it's God lifting his hand between you and your consequences and saying, What you have done and the consequence it brings, I'm now going to allow it to fall on you. And so, what we now see is the consequence of our sin. And we've seen this already, but we see it again. Now, the first six bowls as they're being poured out, the consequence of your and my sin, the consequence of Disobeying God, breaking his creation, we get broken creation in return. So, in verse 6 it is judgment on creation itself. You have the seas, the land, everything's polluted and broken. And no, this is not some ecology moment, but understand, God deals judgment on all of creation because all has been broken because of our sin. And then we have judgment not just on creation, but now, chapter 17 and 18, we're introduced to these two vile images, and it is really God's judgment on wicked ideologies. Wicked ideologies. You say, what are the images? Well, we are introduced. It's a weird moment. And if you want to kind of keep yourself up at night, read this before you go to sleep, because you have a picture of a woman. She's a prostitute. And she's riding on one of the two beasts that was introduced earlier in Revelation, Revelation 13. It's such a bizarre image. So you've got this beautiful woman who's dressed Horribly. And she is not only a horrible dressed woman, but she is a blasphemer. In fact, on her body is written that she is the mother of all prostitutes, she's the mother of all who've fallen from God. She's the one who entices people away, and in her hand is a cup, it says, where she is drinking, and it is the blood of the saints. This is the image God gives. And she's riding on one of the two beasts. And this beast has seven heads, ten horns, seven crowns. You're like, what was John smoking when he saw this? And what is this supposed to mean? And here's what you need to know. Very simply, this is a picture of Roman and Babylonian ideology and idolatry. You say, how do we get that? Well, the beast, we've already talked about this, but the beast has seven heads, seven crowns. It is no coincidence that the city of Rome was built around and actually in between seven hills. The beast is the picture of all that is broken in Rome, the power of the world at the time. And the woman, she sits on the beast and they stand next to a series of many waters. The ancient city in the early or in the uh, Old Testament of Babylon was positioned between many waters... And she was the enemy of God. Babylon was the enemy of God in the old. Rome, the enemy of God in the new. In other words, these ideologies are not limited to one place in time, but it is a wicked ideology that goes through history and, by the way, finds itself in our homeland and around the world today, doesn't it? When we tell people that marriage is something to be sloughed off if it's inconvenient, that's an evil ideology, isn't it? When we say children are not a gift from God but may be exposed of because they are inconvenient or may keep us from things, that is an evil ideology. When we say about our children that if they're confused, then we may mutilate their bodies or confuse their minds, that is an evil ideology. And we could go down a track of all sorts of things when we talk about how it is more blessed to keep than to give, that greed is good, that is an evil ideology. This is not limited to Babylon and Rome, but it is true in our day as well. And God says, I will judge those ideologies. So in chapter 18, Babylon falls. The woman is cast down, and angels say, Babylon has fallen. Do you notice, by the way, how God's mercy and justice are paralleled? Through nature we see who God is, but God will judge creation. It is in knowing what is going to happen that God also deals with the ideology. So let's talk about what do you guess the third and final judgment will be against. Well, it turns out that it's against demonic powers. The seventh bowl, the final judgment of God, is poured out... And the weirdest phrase, if you don't kind of get a little sense of theology, you'll maybe miss this. So let me just kind of take you to it. In chapter 16, verse 17, it says this. The seventh angel poured out his bowl. Don't put this up yet. But into the air. You say, what does that mean about anything? Who cares? Okay, so the air? Well, if you go to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, the apostle Paul will tell us that Satan is the prince of the air. This is a direct attack on the enemy. See, at the end of the end of the end, when God is done with all of it, the final judgment will be against the one who began the problem, Satan himself. He will be cast out, destroyed, gone. Aren't you glad that God will deal with the enemies of God? Say yes. But how many of us know that before we came to Christ, we ourselves were enemies of God? See, sometimes I like to position myself and assume that, well, I'm not the best in the world, but I'm also not really an enemy of God. I'm just somewhere here in the middle, right? I'm not really that bad. I'm also not really that good, maybe. I'm just somewhere here in between. And the book of Revelation says there is no in-between point. You are either under the mercy of God or under the judgment of God, but there is no place between. But the good news is is that the gift of grace isn't just for some. It is given and available for all. In fact, write this down. Here's the good news. Are you ready for some good news? Say yes. Here's the good news. The good news is that yes, there's mercy. Yes, there is judgment. Yes, God will finish what he started. But here's the good news. God's love goes forever. But his wrath has an expiration date. God's love, put this up, God's love will go forever, but His wrath, His judgment will have an expiration date. By the way, have you ever seen something with an expiration date on it? Have you ever drunk milk from a carton that had already expired? See, at some point, God's judgment will be done. It'll be over. And here's what I've been praying all week for you and for me, and for our family. is that God's judgment might come to an end in your life today. That you would come to know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Put Him on in baptism. Remember it says, if you're in Christ, well how do you get in Christ? You put Christ on through baptism. You confess your sin. I'm a sinner. I need a Savior. And I am not a good boss or Lord for me, so I need a good boss or good Lord. So I need Jesus to be my Savior and my Lord. And you say, how do we know that God's judgment comes to an end, that there's an expiration date? Well, because He said it in this passage. Look at this. Just look in your Bibles. Chapter 15, verse 1 says this, I saw in heaven another great and marvelous sign, seven angels with seven last plagues. This is the seven bowls we just talked about. They are last because with them, God's wrath is completed. He's not going to keep disciplining. He will take care of what's wrong, and that is it. You can be in the mercy of God, never again afraid of what is to come, for the grace of God has covered you, that God himself has paid the price for you. That death cannot get you, that the enemy has no sway over you. You can be in Christ, the mercy of God over you, or under the judgment of God because you say, I follow the beast, not the lamb. This is the beautiful promise of this entire passage. I love what one preacher said. He said, No one is under the wrath of God except those who choose to be. It is a choice. And it is a gift to be able to today say, I am under mercy. Don't raise your hand, but how many of us are under mercy today? If you've been baptized, if you've asked for God's forgiveness, then you are under the mercy of Jesus Christ. Is that good news to anyone else today? And if you're not, here's the good news. Today, the expiration of judgment can be done with you as well. We're going to end with this one little verse. It's not on the screen, but I do think you'll remember it. For God so loved the world. For God so loved you that He gave His one and only what? Son. That whoever believes in Him, in Jesus, shall not perish, shall not be judged, but will have eternal life. And a love verse 17, we skip it so often, but hear these words. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world. Jesus did not come to condemn you. That is not why He came. He didn't come because God was angry and wanted to smack you across the face and get rid of you. Rather, but to save the world through Him. God's justice must be paid, but Jesus paid the price. In fact, the very final part of that verse that we read where he pours the plague out into the sky, into the air. There's one little phrase I skipped. Let's go back to it. You need to see this, and then we're going to call it a morning. Are you ready? Here it is. Can you put this back up? He says after he pours it out into the air, that out of the temple came a loud voice from the throne. By the way, who's on the throne, church? Let's try this again. Not a trick question. Who's on the throne, church? God is on the throne and out from this temple came a voice from the throne saying, it is done. Question, what does that sound like to anyone else? Was there another moment someone said something like, it is finished? Because God has paid the price so you don't have to. If you want mercy, today can be the day to say yes to Jesus. Put him on in baptism. And if you are under the grace of God, stop living like you're under the judgment of God. He loves you. You're his child. Now live saved and confident in your salvation. Amen?